Good morning, everybody. You're very, very welcome. You are welcome, as I said, to today's webinar. It is part of the HCI webinar series. My name is Una Gilvary and I'm the CTO of HCI. And today we're going to be looking at how we can, I suppose, initiate our process for preparing for compliance uh, in, in the home support sector and how we can plan our route to compliance utilizing a gap analysis tool. So I think we have some interesting things that we can talk to you this morning about. For those of you who may not be quite au fait with HCI, we support, um, I'll just bring it down so we can see our lovely colored slides. Uh, we uh, help providers of health and social care um, services to make intelligence driven decisions to attain, manage and improve quality, safety and regulatory compliance. We've worked with a very broad spectrum of clients within the health and social care uh, sector from acute services, residential disabilities, and obviously uh, with home care and home support services. Also, we have currently two offices, one in Galway and in Dublin, and I've currently run 30 staff. So we have plenty of people that we can draw on expertise from. So why are we here? Why have you good people given of your time this morning um, in relation to this webinar? Well. I'm sure you're all very, very aware of the regulatory framework model that's in discussions and trundling down the tracks to us at this stage. Those draft regulations being released in June of last year. And I know there's a number of ongoing processes of discussion and tweaking and uh, um, a number of activities ongoing in relation to content. But we do know that those draft regulations are those regulations are coming. And when they do arrive, they will be supported by a number of guidance documents that will be released from the Department of Health and then will be supported also by a set of national standards uh, provided by HICWA. And they're going to set some of the high level outcomes uh, in relation to services and what uh, they expect to see in relation to service provision. The content is said. It is undergoing review and, and, and feedback and a lot of back and forth, but we do have a pretty good idea of the type of, uh, of, of focus that will be there and, and the required content that they're going to expect to see, not only from the draft regs, do we have this knowledge, but also looking at the residential and disability sector specifically, they do have a very particular type of approach um, and, and this is going to be reflective um, I, I, I would say in relation to the home support services also. So from that, we know it's coming down the tracks. Um, so at what stage, I suppose, are we going to launch ourselves into the world of compliance or assessing our compliance? And I suppose I think at this stage and, and in relation to the broader health, health HCI approach, it's now time to benchmark your service and ask yourselves really key questions um, about your service provision as it currently stands. Are you preparing for regulation? Are you going to sit on your hands and wait and see what happens and see what tweaks are made down the road? Or are you going to launch yourself into the process at as early stage as possible, which is certainly always well received uh, by regulatory bodies when the time comes that people get off the blocks as quickly as possible and start re really assessing what this regulation is going to mean for your service and how, what is it going to mean for the care and support that you provide to your service users. Asking yourself questions about how are your service processes currently stacking up against what's required? You know, are our processes are comprehensive? Are they really effective? And do they hold the person central to, um, to, to their being? So are they really looking at where they need to look at and ensuring um, effective and positive outcomes for your service users? 
So when we work with the with the service providers across the health and social care spectrum, and they're facing either into brand new regulation or changes to regulation or new sets of standards, the approach that we utilize is what we call a gap analysis approach. And I'm sure you all have heard of that before. But if we look at specifically what a gap analysis is, it's a method of objectively assessing the performance of a service to determine whether or not the requirements, and in this case, those being the draft regulations, whether they're being met, and if not, what steps do we need to take to, to, to achieve compliance with them, okay? And that word objectively is very central to the gap analysis approach. And we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a couple of slides time. Typically, when we talk about gap analysis, it, it, it acts as a starting point for an action plan. It's not something that we do when we're halfway down the track. It really acts as our starting point. And that's why it's so important to get off the blocks as quickly as possible. Um, about looking at achievement for compliance, yes, the minute may change, but getting a starting point and identifying where the, the really significant gaps are so we can start working on those action plans that might take a little bit more time to give, it, to give us as much scope as possible to be able to, to kickstart that process. It's important when we talk about gap analysis that it is clearly very different from audit. Audit is a verification that the processes we already have are conforming to requirements. And it really is a snapshot in time. When we would do an audit, we don't review every single section of a regulation or a standard. When we do an audit, we select maybe key areas where there's a high risk or where there's been problems in the past, and we focus on them. Whereas in gap analysis, it's a much more broader and open approach um, rather than the more restrictive elements of audit. So it's important to bring that to mind. When we utilize gap analysis, we can identify, as I said, those specific processes that might be left out or not yet fully developed or just need a lot more uh, time and effort implemented to it. And from that, it's about a guiding our allocation of resources and then identifying additional training or education uh, requirements for staff that we might uh, need, need to harness to ensure the quality and safety of our care. So it is, it is very much about a tool rather than a stick. Um, um, uh, that, that that's really the way that we want to approach it. When HCI embark on a gap analysis for a client, we have six very key stages um, that we implement. And we're going to go through each of these uh, this morning. We'll move through them, unfortunately, quite quickly. And I know we have limited time. But we're going to look at when we have a gap analysis, it's really important. We, first of all, we need to establish the target. And we already know what that target is based on those draft regulations and, and the requirements that are detailed within them. We're then going to try and understand the assessment approach. And what I mean by that is, when HICWA are coming on site and they are doing their analysis and, and, and reviewing the compliance of your uh, services, we want to try and get into their mindset when we're doing the gap analysis. What would they expect to see? What would they expect to, people to be able to communicate to them about the service? What would they um, what they what would they expect to observe when they see those processes being implemented? So we want to try and get into the mindset of what is expected of us, not what we think might be expected of us, but what a regulatory body uh, would expect to see when they come on site. So that's we'll, we'll have a little chat about that. Then about analyzing our current process. How do we get out on site and get in? get stuck into our service to really do an effective gap analysis? How should we record those findings? How should we rate our level of compliance? And then talk about developing that action plan at the back end. So we have six stages here and, and, and we'll go through each of those. 
So as I said, with stage one, this uh, establishing the target, well, I suppose as we currently stand, the target is compliance with the draft leg regulations as they currently stand, because that's that's what we've got right now. I am very aware that it is a movable target and that the standards and, and, and guidelines are yet to come. And, you know, that will push us a little bit further. Um, but, you know, we do have a pretty good handle on the key areas that we need to focus on and the types of requirements um, that we are going to be, uh, it's expected us to be compliant with. It's important when we embark on a gap analysis that we really manage it, as I call it, in bite-sized chunks. And what I mean by that is we, we're not trying to assess everything in one go. Like if we're talking about the draft regulations, then just look talk about the draft regulations. Don't try and add on the IPC standards or the national standards for safeguarding and what happens then it just gets too unwieldy and out of control and when we talk about the gap analysis as well we can also divide it up into the key regulations say okay well maybe we'll just cover five regulations within this gap analysis and another five and the next set you know we have to manage with what we have and the resources that we have and we're considerate of that one of the key things before we embark on the gap analysis process is that we have a tool to document the process now this is not a very complicated tool we utilize um, an, an excel sheet to support our model but it just gives us some place that we have that we can collate all of the information um, and, and utilize it as a live document and a live action plan as we move forward so i've just taken for example here this is the regulation 17 in the draft regs for policies and procedures so we just literally detail out the regs, give a section for where we're going to record our findings. We detail our compliance rating. I'm going to talk about that in a little while and how we identify what that should be. A section for our quality improvement project. So that's going to be our action plan when we come to, uh, to that stage of the gap analysis process. We're going to define the individuals who are responsible for it, not the teams, the individuals for the actions as they come out. What is the timeline we expect to implement this action within and the ongoing rolling status of it. You can see down at the bottom, we have just little tabs here. So again, dividing it into the bite-sized chunks and just taking each regulation as it comes so that we have a manageable set of data as we move through the process. So it's a very simple tool, but one that we utilize. And, 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 and as I said, it can remain as a live document as we update it. Now, stage two is understanding the assessment approach by the regulatory body. And this is the bit that takes the little bit of work. So what I'm trying to get across here, as I said, it's about when we are doing this gap analysis, when we're reviewing our documents, when we're out on site, we're observing the services being implemented, what would the regulatory body expect to see? What is their approach when they go out um, and, and analyze services? Now, we don't have an awful lot of documentation. We don't have any from HICWA in relation to the home support model, but we do have a lot of other supporting documentation in uh, reflective sectors like disabilities or residential care. So they normally release two types of documents when they're going to be coming out on site. And one of them is the assessment judgment framework, which details lines of inquiry or questions that they will normally ask under each of the regulation types. And the second is the guidance for assessment of centres. So again, they have one for disabilities and residential. And this details the type of evidence they would expect to be available to them when they go out on site. So they're really key documents that will give us an insight for the types of things um, that, that, that uh, HICO would expect to see. Another 
font of knowledge, but you know, there's a lot of information in it, is, are the HICWA inspection reports. And that's work that we do within HCI where we trend the information that is coming out of inspe HICWA inspections so we can see uh, what we call the hot right now, the key areas where there's problems in non-conformance. And we can see the trends, be it in risk management or, or uh, complaint management, whatever the case may be, and the types of non-conformances that are being uh, recorded and, and, and being communicated against services. So that information available, I said that's that, that type of trending work we do in HCI um, because it, it can be very difficult to pull that data out individually. So that information is available to us. It's really important that we try and get into the psyche of that and get into the feel of it. So those expected lines of inquiry, what are the key questions they're going to ask? And then the three elements, what do they expect to observe? What do they expect to be communicated to them? And what do they expect to be available to them? What evidence are they going to expect to see? So just on the basis of that, I pulled an example for Regulation 17, Policies and Procedures, because again, that's covered in, in disabilities and, in, and residential services. So it's pretty standard, the, the sort of thing they're going to look for. So remember that triangulation model when they come and look at a regulation, they, they review it through documentation, observation and interview. They have their three pronged approach. So if they looked at Regulation 17 today in, in the home support sector, and they decided to assess the policies and procedure requirement, they would expect to review documents such as your written policies, procedures, and guidelines. Who has approved them? Were they appropriately approved? Were they appropriately um, uh, communicated to those who need them to be communicated to? Or was the training completed on them? Uh, are they being reviewed on an ongoing basis? Do staff have access to the policies and procedures? Are the service user records or outputs, are they reflective of the processes that are detailed within the policies and procedures? Um, is there access to best practice? Do the policies and procedures incorporate elements of best practice or guidance in relation to it? So that's the type of documentation review that they would be expecting to see. If they were to speak to people in relation to the communication element, they would expect staff to be very knowledgeable about the policies and procedures, whether they implement them or do they know how to implement them, and if the practice that they're implementing is reflecting the policy. Are they aware of the changes that may occur within policies and procedure? How is that communicated to them? Um, how does the service provider ensure that these policies and procedures are implemented consistently? Is there a monitoring or assessment model like audit that's being implemented to ensure uh, that, that they are being uh, applied consistently? And are, are they being reviewed, as I said, as often as required, but at a minimum every three years? through observation, so when they would be on site and observing the service being applied and they're considering policies and procedures, again, is the process in the policy and procedure, the process ref, uh, reflective of the process that's being implemented? Are the staff able to refer to policies and procedures? Do they have access to them? Do, do they touch base with them? Are the roles and responsibilities taken by staff uh, in application of service, are they reflective of the roles and responsibilities allocated or detailed within the policies and procedures? And are the staff completing the records and documentation that's required as per the policies and procedures? So that's the type of, as I said, the approach you're trying to just get into the mindset when we're doing a gap analysis on site within our own services, that we need to have that approach and thought process, the communication, the observation and documentation approach. Okay, so 
uh, we've uh, we, we know what our target is. We have our tool. We also have an, a fair understanding of what the regulatory body will expect to see. So now it's time for us to actually embark on the gap analysis process. And remember that consideration of interview observation and documentation. So when we do a gap analysis, this is not a desktop review. This has to incorporate these three elements. So from that, we need to schedule our gap analysis. And I've just given a very small uh, screenshot of, of, of just a, a sample of, of a type of agenda that we would look to do. Now, first of all, you have to identify who's going to do this gap analysis, both the documentation and the, the, the on-site element of it. Uh, so who's going to be able to facilitate this process? And again, really important that we have that objectivity that's required for gap analysis. Um, and that's really difficult when you're trying to find somebody internally to do it. So we, we all protect the processes that we do every day. As I said, well, me, my, uh, myself, we're protecting them like our, our firstborn. Uh, but it's really important that we come with that objectivity and that HICWA mentality. When we're doing the gap analysis, it's important. We have to cover all aspects of the regulation eventually. I mean, they, you know, as I said, we can do it in those bite-sized chunks, but it's not like an audit where it's a snapshot. We have to cover all of the regulations if we are doing a full gap analysis of the service. Generally, what I would say, the documentation review is kind of separate, but generally, if we were to complete a service uh, gap analysis, uh, the on-site interview process is normally completed over two to three days. So that's going to take a fair bit of scheduling and organization. Um, and, you know, who are the required attendees and, and who are we going to have direct communications with? So we need to have a clear divvying up of the agenda over our period of time. What is the timeline? How long are we going to spend on each section? What's the area for review and who do we expect to talk to in relation to it? So that takes a little bit of time and, and consideration in that regard. As I said, it's really important to review again, uh, beyond the paperwork. It is not a desktop exercise. We want information to be sourced from those service user visits, from observations, those one-to-one -one discussions with staff and with service users, if at all possible, as well as that review of documentation. And again, that objectivity of this stage is so critical and must be reflective of the regulatory body approach. Just when you are going out and, and, and completing that observation and interview element uh, of gap analysis, we're looking for evidence of implementation. If it's not written down, it didn't happen in relation to the documentation, but we're also looking to observe the practice that's being implemented. Um, we need to obviously be considered of privacy, dignity and consent in relation to our service users. It's really important that we speak to the staff on the ground that are implementing the process on a day-to-day -day basis and not just the line managers. We would expect the line managers to, to be able to, to, to work or to, to detail the spiel that's required, but we really want to talk to the, the, the staff on the ground. And that's reflective of the HICWA approach also. One of the key things uh, within gap analysis or within a, even any audit approach, it's really important that we talk to staff and communicate, ask them whether they know what to do when something goes wrong. In many policies and procedures, it has A to B to C, and if everything goes 100%, that's how it works out. But what happens if a hazard or a risk occurs, something out of the ordinary and throws it off kilter? Is the policy and procedure considerate of that? And does it have a response mechanism detailed? Do they have an escalation process? Do they know what to do if something goes wrong? Because, you know, and again, that's reflective of the HICWA approach. They know everything will run smoothly when everything runs smoothly, but what if something uh, goes wrong? And what is the response going to be from the staff on the ground? 
If we were completing a gap analysis, what is the types of documentation we'd look to review? I mean, it's a very broad spectrum. Um, when we're looking for evidence of application of requirements, we'll need to look at strategic and operational plans, team charts, terms of reference, minutes, agendas, statements, purpose, continuity plans, and financial records. And when we talk about monitoring and measurement, I'd expect to see audit reports, KPIs, annual review data, instant management records, risk registers, uh, quality improvement projects or initiatives and all external reporting information. These would all be part of the documentation evidence that HIC would expect to see. Within our HR records, I want to see staff files, job descriptions that are reflective of actual roles and responsibilities, including uh, designates, should that be the case. Training plans, induction and ongoing training records, rotas, agency staff records, performance reviews, and supervision records. So all of those will act as evidence for your application uh, uh, to illustrate compliance with the requirements. Other um, documents, obviously your service user records are central to it, those contracts, their personal support plans and records, surveys, communications, complaint management records, and supplier contracts and monitoring records are really important also, particularly for those suppliers that are key to the quality and safety of care that you're providing. So we've gone out on site and we've done the doc review, we've observed, we've communicated, and now it's important for us to detail our findings. So that's about comparing the current evidence of compliance with the expected evidence compliance and identifying the gap. So I've just done a little selection here. This is just uh, some, some random stuff. So say in relation to the findings here, the first one being the service provider shall adopt and implement written policies and procedures required by the regs. So a number of policies and procedures required by Schedule 2 were not available for review, specifically risk management, medication administration support and safeguarding. So there are three pretty key policies and procedures that were not available. So that's one of the findings. Second requirement was that the policies and procedures should be dated and their implementation monitored as part of the home support provider's quality assurance process. So of my finding on that, of the policies and procedures released, all were dated. However, there was no evidence available to illustrate how the implementation of these documents are currently monitored by the service. So that's a significant finding also. And then the last one is about the review of the policies and procedures every three years and detailed in the findings here. Policies and procedures available were within the review requirements of three years and did contain the requirements of the regulation and national guidelines. So we seem to be ticking the box in relation to that. So we've detailed our findings. So our next stage then is we have to rate our compliance in relation to it. Now, generally what we would recommend is that you would utilize the compliance rating that your uh, regulatory body uh, utilizes. So we can only go on the information that we already have. And this is the, 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 the rating model they utilize for residential and disability services currently. So you have two models of non-compliant, that being red and orange. Red is where you have um, a, uh, the service is not complied with the reg and considerable action is required. Continued non-compliance uh, poses a significant risk to the safety, health and welfare of the service user. So that they would see this as a significant and it requires immediate action. So this is the highest level of risk. Where we have a non-compliant orange, so again, they recognize action is required, but it does not pose the risk to the health, safety, welfare of the service user. So it's a problem, needs to get sorted, but they're not concerned that there's an immediate risk to the service users 
in, in relation to that finding. Substantially compliant is a, a somewhere go between. Uh, so generally they've met the requirements, but not quite as nice as they'd like it to be. Uh, and they give that a low risk rating. And then obviously you have your compliance of green, which is full compliance. So if at all possible within gap analysis, we try and utilize that. Again, it's about trying to get into the mindset of your regulatory body and the application. So based on those findings that we talked about a few minutes ago, I've allocated a non-compliant red to the first one because if we have no controlled processes, specifically in relation to risk management, medication, and safeguarding, they are key, key central policies, um, then there could be a very specific risk, uh, direct risk to the, the service being provided to service users. Um, in relation to the second one, we haven't got a monitoring method. Now that could, could go red or orange depending on, um, it, and again, a lot of the information or findings that are recorded would need to be supported by other documentation. But in this example, I've said, okay, they are in place. They may be happy with the application of them, but that there's not an effective audit process in place to monitor their application. So in that case, it would be non-compliant orange. And, and as I said, the last one, they're, they're doing what they need to do for the policies that are actually released. And in that case, we detail it as being compliant. So we've done our, our findings and our compliance rating, and at this stage, our job is to develop an action plan. And this is really the central driver as we move forward. So we're looking to develop a comprehensive step-by-step -step action plan to bring the current status, where we are, to where we need to be. And, you know, as I said, that gap analysis is giving us the time and space for us to be able to do that rather than um, when a big stick comes and uh, it's hanging over our heads and we have to get it done uh, super quick. We need to ensure that individuals are provided with responsibilities, not teams. We don't say it's the management team's job to do that because we know then it'll be nobody's job to do that. So it's really important that we give uh, the responsibilities to specific individuals. With, if they decide to allocate it to somebody else, that's fine, but the book stops with them in relation to the responsibility. It's really important that we set that timeline for implementation. Are we giving it a week, a month, whatever the case may be, but set a date, a specific date, and then on that basis, these open actions have to be reviewed on a scheduled basis. You have to incorporate this review, the review of those open actions as part of either a management team meeting or some format that there is a scheduled uh, ongoing rolling meeting and that the, the requirements for the review of that open action plan has to be part of the agenda and preferably detailed within their terms of reference for that meeting team. Because if it isn't given as a, a formal responsibility, it just ends up not getting followed up. And with so much good work being done up to that, it is a shame then when open actions just kind of dwindle on and it's never done. And it's really important that as well, if it's a thing that actions aren't being uh, implemented and, and there is a lack of focus of it, that there's an escalation process there. Like at what stage are we going to bring these to the service providers? Say, Look, we have these open actions. They're just not getting done and we're going to find ourselves in trouble when, when the regulations come to pass. You know, so that escalation process is there and it needs to be given that level of importance by the management team and by the service provider. And as I said, it's really important that when QIPs are closed or whatever justifications, if there's an extended timeline required, that that's documented in the meeting minutes. So that's clarity on, on the process and, and, and how it's ongoing.
So as I said here, I've developed some QIPs. So one of them might be to develop, approve, release the policies and procedure for risk management, medication, uh, administration, safeguarding in line with regulatory requirements and best practice. And the second would be complete training for all relevant staff on the approved policies and procedures. So we've given specific responsibilities and the timelines and detail the status in each case. And the second one, so this is in relation to the monitoring process of policies and procedure, update the audit schedule to ensure that all policies and procedures are incorporated into the scope of audits to review implementation practice. So there may have been an audit schedule in place, but it didn't have all of the policies and procedures addressed. So in that case, again, given the specific responsibility, a timeline and a status ongoing in that regard. So there are six stages for the gap analysis, the very much a whistle-stop tour, and you can see there's a huge amount of information and requirements and actions that are required behind that, but it is that establishing the target, getting into the mindset of a, a, an objective approach from, a, 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 from which is similar to a regulatory body, analyzing those current processes from a documentation an observation and a communication perspective, recording those findings objectively and specifically, rating your services level of compliance, and then from that, developing that step-by-step -step action plan and ensuring that it's followed up on um, by, the, by, by the management team and, 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 and given a sufficient amount of weight within the organization. In relation to HCI, we are we complete gap analysis. We can support you in that process um, against draft regulations or whatever standards or requirements that you'd like to assess. Uh, and from that, we, de we develop a comprehensive report detailing not only the key areas of focus that may need uh, development, but also identifying areas of good practice for the organization. And if you have any queries in relation to that service, please feel free to give us a call at the number detailed or the email address. And I do know that Rosemary is circulating the link for this webinar through all of our social media channels. So if it's a thing that you think that other members of um, uh, other colleagues might be interested in uh, hearing what we had to say this morning, then please feel free to communicate that. Thank you very much, everybody, for your time. We, we hope to run a number of, uh, this was our first of the webinar series for uh, 2023. We will be running some more throughout, uh, throughout the year. So um, keep an eye on our social media channels and Rosemary will let you all know about what will be next to trundle down the line. Uh, but thank you very much for your time this morning.